0: Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the DailyDownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it DailyDownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, DailyDownForce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out DailyDownForce.com. That's DailyDownForce.com. And I'll see you in for a little behind the scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills.
1: He's got two things in his hand. Pipe wrench and channel lock pliers. And they weren't new. They yeah. had been they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't so, the
0: first steel they built, I bet.
1: No, <laughs> no, you know, you, I think they were they had the,
0: the pliers had been red before the paint had worn yeah. off.
1: Thought he was doing pretty good and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappear but then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh and comes back towards him and it, it, as he said
0: it was a game of chicken and i was a chicken and so he ran off the boat <laughs> and actually he was the guy who who caught junior johnson at his daddy still when junior got tangled up in a in a barbed bar. wire <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, The Seen Bolt Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway,
2: America's racing showplace. There's nothing wrong with being compared to David Pearson. I mean, in my mind. Richard would come up to daddy and whisper in his ear, hey, you ain't crap. And Daddy would turn around and say, oh, you ain't crappy. You know, they would, they would tease each other like that. I was not happy that he was suspended. Really? I was not. Uh, I honestly think that I was going to win anyway. That was the end of the bananas. Cause I, man, that, that tore me up, because he had gotten hurt. and I, I, I It wasn't my fault, but I, I, I blame myself for putting those bananas in his seat.
3: Today, NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR, forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future.
0: Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place, and a track that truly cares about NASCAR history and We are also now a part of the Daily Downforce Content Network. There is no other way for us to start this episode than for you to verify for our listeners that I did, in fact, keep my word and eat liver mush last week. You and Keith Rodden, who is the crew chief for Austin Dillon now, you two are my witnesses.
3: Yes, sir, Rick, you did do it. And I got to tell you something. I'll wash you to eat that stuff. And you tried to do it with a smiling face, but you couldn't do it. You turned green, (laughs) (laughs) started washing it down with iced tea, but you (laughs) swallowed it. You got it down. It did not come back up. That you know of. (laughs) Let's put it this way. I'm glad I didn't see it. (laughs) Anyway, Rick, yes, you did it. You kept
0: your word. Well, I'll tell you this. When they brought the order to the table, and I saw that there were two pieces of liver mush on that plate. (laughs) Ooh.
3: (laughs) And I like the way you place your order, Rick. You said, burn
0: the taste right out of it if you can (laughs) Well, let's just put it this way. I did not eat both pieces, but I did eat one entire piece. And I, we've actually had some questions on Twitter about liver mush being the same thing as scrapple. I don't know. I don't know if scrapple is liver mush or if liver mush is scrapple. I, I don't think so. And I, I don't care enough to find
1: I've out. I've seen
3: scrapple. and <laughs> I don't think they're the same, Rick. I have seen scrapple and I've seen liver mush. I can tell you this. I will never eat either one of them.
1: (laughs) Well, that
0: being said, even though I did have to eat that nasty mess, I still enjoyed breakfast that day because you were there and also Keith Rodden was there and we had a great conversation.
3: Oh yeah, absolutely great. Keith told some great stories. No doubt about it. I had a very good time talking with him. I'd never met him before, but this was really enjoyable.
0: Well, he has been one of our biggest supporters on the podcast, on our Twitter feed. Yeah, He was a big supporter when I was doing the whole 5,000 mile nonsense, but that was the first time I had met him face-to-face. So that was pretty cool.
3: Yeah, that was cool. Really cool. I'm glad that he's a big fan of our show.
0: With that out of the way, for the second straight week, I was called upon this past weekend as a substitute ace car driver all right can we move on please (laughs) (laughs) no we can't (laughs) there was a monster truck show and a demolition derby up at the pine so i wasn't needed there but mark ebert who runs lonesome pine he also helps run pulaski county motorsports park up in fairlawn virginia He texted and said that he needed someone in the pace car there. And what was I going to say to that? I was like, count me in.
3: Oh, I know you were
0: all for that. Yeah. (laughs) My pace car resume is growing. Now, the main events last night were a pair of 50-lap Grand National Super Series events. And Jeremy Mayfield. Oh, there's a blast from the past. Was in that race. It was kind of cool because Jeremy and I went through the fast track driving school together in 1991. So I taught him everything that I knew about being a race car driver. And he went on to have this great career.
3: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Back that up. You said you taught him everything you knew about being a race car driver.
0: Yeah. So that took about three minutes and then I did the rest it, of the school. <laughs> <laughs> about one minute. <laughs> but then of course, getting to know Jeremy at that school I kept up with him, and, of course, he was running ARCA at the time for the Sadler Brothers, and then he moved up to the Winston Cup circuit where he started running some races for the Sadlers. And I did a story on Jeremy in 1993 or 94. To my knowledge, it was the first national story that had ever been written on Jeremy.
3: I believe it was, Rick. I know it was the first story about Jeremy I had ever read.
0: And then last night, I get to drive the pace car for a race that he won. He won the second Grand National race last night. And Steve, I got to tell you, man, the way that he won that race was a thing of beauty. He got up alongside the leader with about 10 laps to go, and they ran door to door for a good four or five laps before Jeremy cleared him and went on to win the race. That was classic short track racing.
3: Yeah, as they say, that's racing. And I can just imagine what that looked like. It had to be very exciting.
0: Now, that I know of, I'm not driving the pace car anywhere next week. So if you're out there listening and you have a racetrack, give me a call. I'll be on the way. (laughs) Steve, this week in the first of what will be two installments of our interview, Larry Pearson talks about growing up as the son of NASCAR icon David Pearson. He talks about racing with his brothers, Ricky and Eddie his move up the ladder from baby grand to Bush series competition, his belief that he would have won the 1986 Bush series championship, even if Jack Ingram hadn't been suspended in his ultra superstitious ways. And Steve, when I say ultra superstitious ways, Larry Pearson is the very most superstitious person I have ever encountered.
3: That is saying something, Rick, because as you will know, among NASCAR drivers, quite many of them are indeed superstitious. So if Larry can pass them all, <laughs> that is something, man.
0: Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the September 25th, 1986 issue of Grand National Scene. Jeff Bodine has a good day at Martinsville right up until his last pit stop. Rusty Wallace's crew got him out first, and Rusty went on to capture the victory. Much to Jeff's chagrin, Ricky Rudd is furious with Kyle Petty, who uses an ambulance to ease out of the racetrack. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Ingram misses Martinsville, but is still atop the Bush series standings afterward, and Gene Granger has the scoop on all that ailed the Elliots in 1986. This week, we have new Patreon support from Johnny Lewis, who added the note. Get ready to eat that liver mush, my friend. So (laughs) thanks, Johnny. I really appreciate your support. Yeah, Johnny, but he did it. Johnny, in all seriousness, I do appreciate you. I appreciate the fact that you're able to laugh with me as opposed to laugh at me. I think it (laughs) might be maybe a little case of both. (laughs) (laughs) And Steve, we also have PayPal help from Mitch Brown, who sent $28 in memory of Davey Allison.
3: Thanks, Mitch. That really means a lot to us.
0: Listeners, you can show your support by grabbing a t-shirt or two or three from our online store. You can show your support with a five-star rating and a written review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts at. If you can help us out on a monthly basis, that address is patreon.com slash the podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast, liver mush or no liver mush, (laughs) or (laughs) venmo.com slash the same vault podcast. And also just as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American city business journals, owner of the same brand. So Larry, what is your earliest memory of your daddy being involved in racing?
2: The earliest memory was back, uh, in the fifties, um, late fifties. I remember him racing at at Greenville Pickens Speedway. It was dirt. And, um, he had a 37 Ford, light blue, red numbers, number was 16A and, uh, that's the earliest I can remember.
0: Now, how often did you go to the races? And what kind of shenanigans did you get into once you were there?
2: Uh, no shenanigans. Um, I Well, when I was younger, I went to the local races where he, before he started racing NASCAR. Uh, every weekend at, at Greenville. Uh, when he moved up to NASCAR, we didn't go so much. I had started school and... Um, I don't know, dad just, he, he went off on his own and took a f- couple of guys with him and me and mom and my, my my brother, Ricky, uh, we stayed at home. Eddie wasn't born until 1965, so, uh, we just stayed home and I went to school and things.
0: Once you did go to the races, the Grand National races, who were some of the other kids that you kind of hung around with? Or did you hang around with him? By
2: Yeah, uh, Dale Jarrett, uh. Michael Scott, who was Wendell Scott's son. Really? Okay. Yep. Uh, that's a really bad all I can remember. I don't remember hanging out with Kyle that much.
0: Well, you are a little bit older than him,
2: yeah, weren't you? Uh, just uh, yeah. maybe a half a year. But uh, no, I'm teasing. <laughs> uh, uh, Davy, Davey was younger. Uh, mostly it was just uh, Dale Jarrett and Michael Scott. And we used to set cups up in the infield. And we would have foot races around in the dirt, and race around those cups on foot, and uh, that was a lot of fun back then. I mean, that's all we had to do.
0: Tell me about the families. How how much did you hang around each other in the infield, picnicking or or anything like that? Did you ever do much of that?
2: No, not without the race drivers' okay. uh, families. No, we never did that. Uh, normally, we would just have our own little picnic. Mama would uh, would cook. Uh, make sandwiches and stuff and drinks for us to, to eat and uh, we just ate amongst ourselves
0: now was that by design or were you just introverted or did you not want to <laughs> pal around with anybody any other drivers
2: uh Families.
0: me well the family my family yes
2: i thought you were talking about dad's family yeah yeah well yeah which one
0: Dad's fa- – when you were a kid going to the races and not going to picnics or not hanging around the other families, was that because your daddy didn't want you hanging around anybody? No. Okay. No. I mean,
2: okay. he didn't care if we hung out. Yeah. Uh, but mostly it was just the kids. Okay. That hang out. Uh, Mom pretty much stayed to herself, as did Linda Petty and, and Martha Jarrett. And uh, they. I, I don't remember anything about them actually hanging out together. Uh, but us kids, we did.
0: Tell me a really good Dell Jarrett story from back then.
2: I could outrun him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Other than that, I really can't tell you. I mean, that was a long, long time ago. Uh, I really don't know. I mean, he was a super nice guy. He was fun to hang out with, as was Michael Scott. And uh, we, just, we had a good time together as far as playing around in the infield.
0: How soon did the racing bug hit you? When did you know that you wanted to race?
2: I knew that I wanted to race cars when I was a junior in high school. Uh, I tried to go to as many races as I could or as many races as my dad would let me. Uh, When I was a senior in high school, I started racing um, the baby grand cars. And how that started was my dad had a a race up in Asheville, North Carolina, a sportsman race, and the baby grand cars were racing up there. And David Watson had a car painted up like dad's 21, and dad went and asked him, could I practice in the car? And I went up there, and I practiced, you know, run a couple laps, and everybody was passing me on every side, and apparently I wasn't going fast enough. And it was very nerve-wracking. So, you know, I, did, I really didn't know after that if I wanted to race. But then David Watson came and asked me, did I want to, want to run the next week at uh, North Wilkesboro? So I said, yeah, sure. So I went to North Wilkesboro. I was running second uh, to Dean Combs at that time. And well, Dean won most of the races at Wilkesboro. But I was running second, and I had a flat tire. And that's when I knew, actually, that I could I could do it, and I wanted to do it.
0: So you were running second in your first race ever after having just a handful of laps.
2: Correct. I was running second at North Willsboro. All
0: right. Cool. Now, you mentioned the fact that Holman Moody or Ford gave your dad this car here, correct? Right. How much did that have to do with you wanting to get into racing?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that particular car which is a 68 or 69 Ford Torino. It has a 428 Cobra jet engine and I drove it to high school and I was racing. Me and a friend of mine was in the car coming back from a football game and I was racing uh, a Mach one and I got up to 140 and I backed out of it. And of course we beat, beat the Mach one. He got off the next exit and we kept going and I just, wanted to see how fast i could go and at 140 i i backed out and i just i don't know i just it it was it felt really really good to run that fast and uh
0: now at 140 you weren't pegged though were you
2: no i was not i was not (laughs) pegged at 140 it would have kept going the speedometer (laughs) went all the way around and then some more and that was enough
0: How did you wind up behind the wheel racing and Ricky and Eddie turning riches?
2: Well, Ricky had always been interested in mechanics, the mechanic side. Uh, When Dad would work uh, on his sportsman car, Ricky was the crew chief, and he seemed to take an interest in that, and he learned a lot. He also learned a lot from other teams that he worked for or would go to the races with. He would go with Butch Lindley. He would go with Jack Ingram, uh, and they taught him a lot also, but most of it came from my dad, and I always wanted to be a driver. Ricky did try racing. Uh, One time in the Baby Grand Division, dad built him a car, and at North Wiltsboro also, um, dad and Ricky had gone to Las Vegas. Dad was getting uh, an award or something out there, and they were having a race at North Wiltsboro, The car that I was driving was torn up uh, from a previous wreck and wouldn't be ready, so I asked Dad and Rick, could I take Ricky's car to North Wilkesboro and race it, and they were hesitant, but I took it anyway, and I crashed it. (laughs) I uh, Well, I got spun out and backed it into the wall and destroyed everything about that car, and so Ricky's... Racing career was over, uh, and just, uh, I mean, he just decided that, you know, he was going to work on cars. And I can say that with, without him, I would not have won as many races as I did and wouldn't have won two championships. I mean, he was the the spark plug behind the race team.
0: You talked about getting into Baby Grands. Was there ever any consideration into actually just going ahead and jumping into the what was then the Winston Cup division right off? Because that was at a time when you could kind of sort of do that.
2: Yeah. No. I uh, first of all, I didn't want to, and second of all, my dad wouldn't let me. He okay. would not let me race up into Winston Cup until he, until he felt like I was ready. Okay. And I felt the same way, yeah. which was 1989. Right. Um. But the time in, the, in which is now the Xfinity series, it was Bush, Bush series back then, and I still call it the Bush series, uh, it was great. I mean, racing for your family, being around with your two brothers, Ricky and Eddie, and the guys that we had working with us at the time, which was only a couple, not like today where you have hundreds of people working. We had uh, me, Ricky, and Eddie in the shop, plus two other guys and we ran a full schedule, and we only had two cars. So, I, I mean, but it was great. I mean, we were, the other two guys that worked with us, even though they weren't family, they were treated like family, and it, it, was, it was really uh, probably one of the best times of my life racing.
0: If I'm not mistaken, from what I could find online, you got your first baby grand win in 1975 at Rockingham?
2: Probably. I won a lot of races at Rockingham.
0: Okay. All right.
2: Uh, that's um, probably where it was.
0: What year did you start? Was that your first year racing? Band? No, I
2: think I started in 74.
0: Okay. All right. So what do you remember about that first win, if anything?
2: Whew. Rockingham. Uh, honestly, I, not much. Uh, 74, Rockingham. I was racing J.V. Rains. Uh, didn't he work for Junior at one time? He did. J.V. Okay. R- yeah. worked with Junior, and his brother Shane Raines, Dean Combs, Larry Hoopall. Uh, it was a very strong field. Yeah. Uh, but on the big tracks, I could run with those guys. But on the smaller tracks, uh, we really didn't have the handling. I'll say that, that we needed for the smaller tracks, but we had the horsepower on the bigger tracks.
0: You walked a road that only a handful of drivers have been down, sons and brothers of the sports, all-time greats being compared to their dads. There was Richard Petty and Lee. There was Kyle and Richard. There was Dale Earnhardt Jr., Carrie and Dale Sr. There was Davey and Bobby and Michael Waltrip and Daryl. How much pressure, if any, did you feel to live up to what your dad had accomplished?
2: I didn't feel any pressure. Uh, I always wanted to be like him or maybe even outdo him, which there was no way I was going <laughs> Good to. Good luck with that. Yeah, really. There was no way I was going to, but I, I, I tried. Yeah. I yeah, tried yeah. to. But uh, there's nothing. there's nothing wrong with being compared to David Pearson, I mean, in my mind. Uh, that was my goal, to be like him, to try to win as much as him, to win as many championships. And uh, But, you know, it just wasn't meant to be. But I'm very satisfied with what I've done in racing.
0: Did he offer help very often, or did he expect you to figure it out on
2: your own? Uh, he offered help when I asked. Okay. Uh, the biggest mistake that we made was letting him be my spotter. Now I don't know if Richard ever spotted for Kyle Or Ned ever spotted for Dale Or Dale for Dale Jr. I don't know But it got so bad That we started giving Dad a radio that was half charged (laughs) And his radio would go out And then he started asking for two radios And we started giving him two radios that were half charged. Just so I wouldn't have to listen to his, I'm going to tell you one more time, boy, how to get into that corner. (laughs) We was at Charlotte. And that's what he told me. Come on, radio. And he said, look here. He said, getting into that first turn, you have got to get higher to enter the corner. And I said, I'm as high as I can go. He said, no, we're not. So a caution came out. He said, "All right, coming down the front stretch." And he said, "Okay, get up close to the wall." And I was up close to the wall. And he said, "Closer." So I got up a little closer. He said, "Closer," and I said, "I'm gonna hit the wall." He said, "Get up closer." Now, <coughs> I scraped the wall. He Not said, that
0: close. <laughs> he said,
2: he <laughs> I said, "I hit the wall." He said, "Why'd you do that?" I said, "Cause you tell me to get. You told me to keep getting closer." So, I mean, things like that. Yeah. I mean, he would uh, just—I would get aggravated sometimes with him spotting for me. But, you know, it is what it is, and I enjoyed everything that he did teach me. And, you know, it, it, it was great to have him around. All
0: right. So I know David Pearson from the outside looking in. A lot of people in the sport knew him from the outside looking in. Who was David Pearson at home? Was he a strict daddy? Was he was he like just go go ahead and tell me about it later? Or
2: he was not strict. Mama was the disciplinarian. Hello. (laughs) He would go. He would let us go and learn by our mistakes. Okay. He was that type of person. And the mistakes that we made, we never done again because, you know, we learned from it. But Mama was the, she was the disciplinarian.
0: What's your best Mama disciplinarian story?
2: Uh, Throwing rocks at us. (laughs) Uh, We were somewhere, I forgot what we were doing, something in the yard. Yeah. And she was telling us to come in the house, you know, not to get grass stains on our jeans. And we didn't care. I mean, man, when I was little, we had holes in our jeans, ripped jeans now. That's the fashion. That's the fashion now. My (laughs) God, if I'd have kept them things, I could have made $100 off each one (laughs) one of those jeans now. But uh, we wouldn't go in. So, I mean, bless her heart, she was an old country girl. I mean, country. And so she just picked up a pile of rocks and started throwing them at us and, to make us come in the house. So.
0: How many rocks did it take?
2: Just a couple. She was
0: a pretty good shot. <laughs> Sometimes there just aren't enough rocks. Yeah. <laughs> from what I found online, also, you had at least some sponsorship from the Baby Grand Days from Louise Smith? Yes. Now, how did that come about?
2: I had known Louise a while before I started racing. I knew her from the racetracks because she would always go to most of the races. And I would known her for a while, and we became pretty good friends. So I just asked her to, you know, buy me a set of tires here and there. And she was, she was able to do that. Uh, tires for the baby grand cars, they were only $100 a piece. So, I mean, that's $400. Yeah. And uh, so she helped me out a lot doing that.
0: What kind of person was she?
2: Louise, very giving very giving person. Uh she was sweet. Uh she'd take a drink every now and then. <laughs> and uh very funny after she did that. Very funny person.
0: After she did that. After
2: she did that. She was she was fun to hang around.
0: Now did she offer any driving advice?
2: No. Really? No. Louise never offered any advice at all as far as driving. Uh don't know that she could. Uh Her cars were a lot different.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You were at the 1976 Daytona 500, where David and Richard had that famous get-together and turn four on the last lap. What do you remember about those last few laps in the aftermath?
2: Well, I noticed that uh, Richard was pulling away from Dad a little bit, with about three to go, maybe. Um, On the last lap... Going down the back stretch, I was in the pits. Eddie Wood looked at me, and he said, David said he can't get him. So I, did, I, I knew then that, you know, it was probably going to finish second. Uh, you couldn't see turn three and four, so I had no idea what was going on. And uh, all of a sudden, I heard the crowd jump up and yell. So I knew something had happened. And then I saw Richard... His car coming down the front stretch, spinning against the wall and stopping to infield. Still didn't see dad. And then all of a sudden, here he comes through the infield grass and, and crosses the finish line. And that was a uh, big, big day.
0: Obviously, everybody knows David Pearson, Richard Petty. Richard Petty, David Pearson. They know about all the first and second place finishes and they know that there was a friendly rivalry. I don't think it was ever overheated or anything no. like that. How did you feel? About Richard Petty, did you ever think, "Hey, you can't race my dad like that," or anything like that? No. Okay. Right. No,
2: never. Uh, Richard was a—he uh, was a, a clean race car driver. Okay. And uh, Bobby Isaac was my dad's best friend when they started racing together. They traveled together. I mean, they—they they, not in the same room, but they stayed at the hotels, the same hotel together. They ate together, and when Bobby died. Um, he became close with Richard. And to be honest with you, they were, they were not brothers, but they acted like it. Really? Yeah. They Richard Petty and David Pearson? Richard Pitt and David Pearson were wow. really, really friendly and close. They really was. And wow. they never raced each other dirty. Um, I mean, you have to earn respect right. out there racing. And uh, so they raced each other clean, and Daddy knew that if he, hit, he, if he was going to win— he had to beat Richard, except at Darlington. And for some reason, he knew he was going to win Darlington. But, uh, yeah, they were very, very close. Did they actually hang out? Or were- I don't think they actually okay. ha- hung out together, Okay, uh, except at the racetrack. Right. And Richard would come up to Daddy and whisper in his ear, hey, you ain't crap. <laughs> and Daddy would turn around and say, oh, you ain't crap. Ah. You know, they would they would tease each other like that. So, yeah, I mean, it was... Very good relationship that they have or had. In
0: 1978, you finished second in the baby Grand standings to Larry Hoopaw, and you won three races. Were you comfortable behind the wheel at that point, or were you still learning?
2: No, I, I was very comfortable then. Okay. I was ready to move, wanted to move up to the Sportsman Series, and I, apparently my dad felt it wasn't. I wasn't ready yet. Now, here's what happened. My dad had a race at Hickory. We went up the day before to test. Late model. Late okay. model car. We went up to test. He was done testing. The car was sitting on pit road. I said, Dad, he said, I'm gonna, I told him, I said, I'm going to get in your car and I'm going to take it a few laps. He said, no, you won't. I said, yeah, I really will. He said, go ahead. So I jumped in that car, took a few laps, and I was just as fast as he was. So,
0: now how did he react to that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, he didn't say anything. And the reason I know that is when I was coming in, I saw Ricky show him the stopwatch. And his reaction was <laughs> like that. Yeah. So that's how it all started.
0: So, how did you react? to him not wanting you to make the move up. Did you go to him and say, Dad, come on, I'm ready? Did you try to negotiate with him?
2: Well, what happened... Let me see. I was also, during my baby grand racing, I was also running a sportsman car at a little track up in Harris, North Carolina, which is only about 45 minutes, just across the border in North Carolina. And I would go there and race... Not ever Saturday, but quite often. And you would have big-time guys show up there when they had a double points race. Uh, Morgan Shepard, Butch, would be there. Don't know that Jack ever came. Bob Presley, he would come, and I would have to race against those guys. I finished second every dead-gum time to them guys. Every dead-gum time. And so I got used to running faster cars at the time. And in 19... 82 or 83, Dad let me race at Charlotte. I mean, that wasn't my first race, but he let me race at Charlotte. And I don't know what happened, but I don't know. I did race. I don't know where I finished or how I finished or whatever. We kept running into the wall. I did that a lot. (laughs) Yes, I did. I crashed a lot.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. So when you did make it to the Budweiser late model sportsman, Bush Late Model Sportsman, what's now the Affinity series in nineteen eighty two and eighty three, were you still racing Baby Grand or were you still running the sportsman car or No. Okay.
2: No, when I moved up to the Bush series, I stayed in the Bush series. Okay. How much
0: of a step up in competition was that for you?
2: Ooh. Big time. Big time tough. The first race that I ran in the Bush Series was at South Boston, Virginia, and you had Ingram, you had Tommy Ellis, you had Houston, you had I think Sam was running then. Sam Ard. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it was. Unbl- I finished 14th. Yeah. That's just to let you know how bad it was, and which. I don't know, I I was wanting to finish better, but you know, 14th in your first race. I don't guess that's too bad, but after that, after that race, I was, I knew right then that I could, I could do it.
0: You did get your first Bush win at Hickory in 1984. And then you got another couple of wins the following year and you finished third in the standings behind Jack Ingram and Jimmy Hensley. What did that do for your confidence? Had you arrived at that point?
2: Well, I hope so. I mean, I, okay. I was I was trying to. You, you, you never know if you've arrived or not. Yeah, it just depends on how your competitors treat you and how they race you. Uh, but I, they race me with respect, and I race them with respect, and I, I felt very comfortable racing around those guys. Um, but you go to different tracks, and there was always. Someone, someone else to beat, like at Hickory, Orange County, and well, some more tracks. I guess you had to beat Jack Uh, when you go to South Boston or Langley Field in Virginia. You had to beat Tommy Ellis when you go to Martinsville. I had to contend with Brett Bodine. Uh, This depends on what track you go to. Different drivers were really good at that particular track and so that's who I tried to beat depending on what track we were at
0: did you have a specific moment in the bush series when you felt like you did belong was there one specific moment or did that just come over time
2: well where i did belong in the bush series probably probably 85 i mean the first race in 84 that i won at hickory Ingram was right on my tail for the last 20 laps. And He probably could have taken me out, but we were friends, and he gladly decided not to, which I was glad he, <laughs> he didn't. I mean, I wasn't yeah. holding him up, yeah. but uh, he did bump me a couple of times, but not hard enough to spin me out. But probably I knew that I belonged there in 85,
0: did you ever have a sense that drivers raced you any differently because of your last name? Did they ever race you harder because they wanted to beat David Pearson's son, or was that just not even a fact? No, that
2: I don't. I, don't, I hope not. Okay. Uh, I mean, heck, every one of them guys raced me hard, <laughs> and not just because of who I was. I mean, right, they raced right. me hard. Okay. Because they wanted to win. They wanted to win just like I did. So, uh, no, I don't think they raced me harder because of who I was.
0: You mentioned Ricky and Eddie working on the race team. What was your relationship like with them as Ricky as crew chief and Eddie working on the team?
2: Eddie took care of the tires. He was the tire specialist. Ricky obviously was the crew chief and did most of the work on the car. Uh, The relationship, just like it is right now. It was great. I mean, we all get, we still get along. Uh, no squabbling. Occasionally, we'll talk about the past, things that we did, things that we accomplished. Uh, but, no, I mean, it's no different now than it was back then, which it was great.
0: Who had the final say on what went on the car? Was it you or Ricky or your dad, or was it truly a team effort?
2: Uh, it wasn't Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> We we tried to set it up when he wasn't around.
0: Uh, He was still trying to figure out the radios. Why his radios uh, kept going dead. Probably. Probably. (laughs) Uh,
2: You know, I don't think we ever told him about that. (laughs) But uh, anyway, uh, Ricky. Okay. Ricky set the car up, and we'd go to the track, and I would tell him what the car was doing, and he would make adjustments.
0: 1986, after Dover, you're third in the standings. 265 points behind Jack Ingram, six races left, I think. So it was going to be an uphill battle if if you won that championship. But Jack heads to Asheville, he runs a race there, and all hell breaks loose. Um, (laughs) How did you find out about what had happened, and what was your reaction to him being
2: suspended? Uh, I was not happy that he was suspended. Really? I was not. Uh, I honestly think that I was going to win anyway. Really? I really did. I was on a hot streak. Jack was fading. Uh, His last few finishes that he did race weren't that good. And I think he was on a downward trend, and I was on an upward trend. And I honestly think that if not beat him, I would have made it interesting.
0: So rather than some yahoo coming in and saying, well, you won that championship, okay, all right.
2: No, I don't agree with that.
0: You did win the championship that season. What did that mean to you personally?
2: Oh, everything. Uh, my first win in 1984 at Hickory, that was my special event. That's, that's what I really take pride in because it was the Bobby Isaac Memorial, and Bobby and Daddy were were, were good friends, close friends then. But the winning the championship, it, it, it took a lot of weight off my shoulders and the family shoulders, and I think that it proved to a lot of people that we were there to stay.
0: You did beat out Brett Bodine for the championship that year, and at some point, he stole your lucky Chattanooga Chew cap. First of all, from what I understand, you were pretty much the king of superstitions. What were some of them that you had? What all was taboo to Larry Pearson?
2: I did have a lucky hat, and Brett did steal it. <laughs> uh, same hat I wore. had worn it all year. Uh, but I did get it back. I got it back. Uh, some other things that I did. I wore the same pair of underwear. (laughs) If I had one the week previously, I wore the same underwear as the next week. And I did wash them, but I did mark them with a Sharpie. Uh, always put my left shoe on first. Uh, And then you've got your typical things. I mean, the the color green, I would never drive a green race car, no peanuts at the racetrack on race day, um, walking under a ladder, black cats. $50 bills? $50 bills, although I'd probably take a bucket of them now. (laughs) You and me both. Uh, But, uh, yeah, it's just, just silly things, but it meant a lot to me back then. How did that come about?
0: Was that at least in part from your dad, or did it just develop over time with other people?
2: Uh, the hat and underwear thing came; I, it was from me. Okay, I did that. The peanuts, the green cars, the fifty-dollar bills—that came from dad. He uh, back in when he was racing at Greenville Pickens, some guy and I don't have any idea who it was had a green car, and he went through the fence, and apparently he got hurt. Pretty seriously. I don't think he died. But from that moment on, daddy said he did not want a green car. And his superstitions passed on to me.
0: Are you still superstitious?
2: Well, with the black cats, yes. If black cat crosses in front of me, I'll put an X on my windshield. Uh, the peanuts don't matter anymore because I'm not racing. $50 bills, like I said, I'd take a bucket of them now. <laughs> Uh, still have my lucky Chattanooga Chew hat. Do you really? I do. Uh, do not wear the same underwear every day now. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right, so about the cap, what was your reaction to Brett taking your cap?
2: Well, I knew he had it. I
0: okay. knew he
2: had it. I talked to one of the other guys on his, uh, on his crew, and they're actually the one that gave it back to me. Of course I had to give him five dollars. But uh it was no big deal. I mean, we used to do things with each other, Brett and I and Mike Alexander. He and I, he, he oh, we'll
0: we'll he get was, to Mike Alexander. We'll get to Mike. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you will.
2: And uh but we we were we were jokesters. We used to play with jokes on each other all the time. Nothing serious that would hurt right. anyone. Yeah. Except the one time uh me and Mike Alexander, we we were running terrible. If I was running terrible, I'd get a bunch of couple of bananas and put in his seat. Try to get the monkey off you back. Right, and he would do the same thing. Put bananas in my seat, and you know just to get the luck away, bad luck away from you. Uh, I forgot where we were racing, but I had a terrible week, and I would, went up and put bananas in his seat, and. The next week he went somewhere to race a All-Pro race or something. The snowball Derby. snowball Derby. Yeah. Is that where he got hurt? Yeah. Mike yeah. got yeah. hurt there. And that was the end of the bananas, because man, that, that tore me up because he had gotten hurt, and I, 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 it wasn't my fault, but I, I, I blame myself for putting those bananas in his seat, and that hurt that, that hurt bad.
1: Hey race fans, John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling, with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48-week automotive technology program, students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu NASCAR today.
0: NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. Larry Pearson is part of a pretty exclusive club in NASCAR, and only members of that group truly know what it's like to be. At that particular party, he is the son of an Uber successful NASCAR icon and legends don't get any bigger in this sport than David Pearson. Now, Steve, who else would you put on this cast of characters?
3: Well, obviously the first one that comes to mind is Richard and Kyle Petty. You got Lee
0: and Richard Petty for that matter. <laughs> oh yeah, true. Bill Jr., Kerry, and Dale Earnhardt Sr. You've got Davy. Clifford, and Bobby Allison. You've got Dale, Glenn, and Ned Jarrett. And Steve, I'm going to go ahead and throw Daryl and Michael Waltrip and maybe Phil Parsons and Benny Parsons into that mix as well. Bobby and Terry Labonte. They're all brothers, but there's a fairly significant age difference between all of those, and Daryl, Benny, and Terry were all well-established in their careers by the time that Michael and Phil and Bobby came along.
3: Yeah, that's a pretty good analogy there. We've talked about fathers and sons in that first group, but I agree with that. In that second group, there was a big age difference between several of those brothers and some people back in the day actually thought that the younger brother was (laughs) the son.
0: Yeah. (laughs) yeah, A Benny or a son of girl. They really did. And you can just imagine the pressure that those guys felt to live up to what their fathers and older brothers had accomplished. But according to Larry, that was not the case with him. And when he said there's nothing wrong with being compared to David Pearson, I think he really meant that. And while he did admit that he tried to win as many races and as many championships, maybe even more than David had, he did conclude by saying that he was very satisfied. With what he did accomplish in the sport, which was significant, he won two Bush series championships. I have to believe that that's just about as healthy a statement that someone in that position could possibly make. Absolutely.
3: Let's look at it this way. The son, in this case, Larry probably knows full well that the odds of him achieving what his father did or even surpassing it are probably slim to none. So why not just go out and do the best you possibly can? Think about the pressure that might take off a young man in his position.
0: Do the best you possibly can to be your own person. Right. Don't worry about your father.
3: Let his achievements stand as they will. You go out and make your own.
0: With that being said, one of my favorite parts of this conversation was him talking about David spotting for him imagine having david pearson as your spotter and him telling you where to go and what to do on the racetrack they wound up giving him a half charged radio so it would go dead during the race (laughs) (laughs) and then david wanted two radios and larry responded to that by making sure that both of the ones that david had were half dead So David Pearson had two half-dead radios, so Larry wouldn't have to hear him or listen to him during the race.
3: (laughs) I I imagine David got kind of excited while on the radio. He wants to see his son do well, of course. But sometimes if you're in a position to want somebody to do well, you tend to overstate the case. You tend to become more of a bother than a real
0: help. And Steve, I am going to equate it to other sports because the very best players in baseball, football, basketball, hockey, the most iconic figures in each of those sports very often make the worst coaches because to them, it just comes natural. Yeah. And then to try to get that across to somebody else, something gets lost in the translation. What gets lost in translations is when,
3: and this is my opinion, the father in this case gets too excited.
0: Do this, do that. No, no, no. do this, do that. <laughs> hey, it was driving you crazy. Now I'm going to go way out on a limb here. We all know, and personally, I loathe those baseball and basketball moms and dads who scream at their kids and umpires during games. I agree. I, I have to believe that they're running youth sports, but that's, you know, that's a soapbox that really doesn't belong on this podcast. But they bring down that embarrassment on themselves, their teams, and most importantly, their own children. Now, I don't think that that was the picture that Larry was trying to paint of David at all. I think he was just trying to do things his way, the way that he was comfortable doing them.
3: I think you're exactly right there. And with David in his ear, and I'm sure he was in his ear a lot. That's not the way Larry wanted it. It didn't make him comfortable.
0: Larry has this truly pristine late 1960s Ford Torino in his shop that he had in high school. And Steve, this thing is beautiful. I'll bet. And we talked about that car during the interview, Steve, he was out on the road racing his buddies at up to 140 miles an hour. Oh, that's not good, Rick. Come on. That's just dangerous. Let's just say that my high school driver would not have been able to keep up with that kind of speed (laughs) with a rocket tied to it. Yeah, I know another high school
3: driver would not be able to match you. All
0: right, so I have to ask, what did you drive in high school, if anything? How did that covered wagon handle, by the way? You're really
3: funny. (laughs) Hey, I had four oxen power in that thing. I was fine, man.
1: 1960
3: Chevrolet Bel Air. My father gave it to me. It was a hand-me-down car. I drove that thing from my fraternity house to college every day. And who knows where else I went with it. But it lasted
0: through college. Four years. When I got to drive, my parents had a 1976 Jeep Wagoneer with rusted out quarter panels. I mean, it was possible to sit in the back seat and see asphalt from inside the car. I took my driver's license test in this thing. And when I tried to ease away from the curb to start, I pressed the accelerator, but nothing happened. I pressed harder and still nothing. So finally, I basically just stomped on it and away we went all of a sudden. I just about laid tracks out of that place, but I still passed.
3: Well, Rick, I got to tell you about my high school driving test. I flunked the first one because I did not parallel park correctly or close to the curb as I should have. So the state walked up to me and he said, you'll just have to come back, son, which is what I did. And
0: I came back and passed the second time, but I flunked for parking. Can you believe that? <laughs> now, see, normally I would make fun of you for something like that. I would yank your chain a little bit, but people who live in glass houses, <laughs> <laughs> not to throw rocks. Now I can parallel park but it's not my favorite thing to do. I don't like parallel parking with the backup cameras that we have now. (laughs) Oh, I don't either. (laughs) I
3: do it when I have to, but thankfully I don't have to that much.
0: Larry and I talked a little bit about Louise Smith sponsoring his baby grand car, but we didn't really give any context about who she was. So Sarah Christian competed in the first NASCAR strictly stock race at Charlotte Speedway in 1949, so that made her the first woman technically to compete in NASCAR. And then in the second NASCAR strictly stock race on the old Daytona beach and road course, she was joined by Louise Smith and Ethel Mobley, who is the sister of Tim Fani and Bob Plot. So the way that they describe Louise is that she is tied as the second woman ever to compete in NASCAR. And she
3: went on long after her racing career was over. To become the grand patron of the Southern 500 beauty pageant held every year in Darlington, along with the Southern 500 parade, she rushed that role. She showed up at every Southern 500, I mean, dressed in her finest and smiling from year to year. It was fun to watch her.
0: Louise did eventually become known as the first lady of racing, and she was the inspiration for the character of Louise Barnstormer Nash in the movie Cars 3. Now, that
3: is cool. That is cool.
0: When they make a Cars 4, and Lightning McQueen winds up on a podcast featuring the history of the Piston Cup, what is your Cars 4 character name going (laughs) to (laughs) be? I don't really know.
3: I've got a few ideas, but I think you're about to give us a few really good ones,
0: Rick. Personally, I picture you as Steve Wading Pool. You'd, <laughs> you'd be a Grand Torino with a jacuzzi in the back. <laughs> uh-huh, that's not bad at all. <laughs> it was with a bit of trepidation that I asked that question on Twitter, and Peyton Turnage immediately came up with Rick Hubcap and Speed Wade. That was
3: oh. awesome. Way to go, Peyton. Nothing's going to beat that one, I don't think.
0: Rick Hubcap. I must be related to Hubcap's Lesh. Steve, do you know that reference, Hubcap's Lesh?
3: I, I can't say that too, Rick. Fill
0: me in. The Andy Griffith Show. Hubcap's Lesh was the oh. old matronly grandma person who was running the car theft ring. Oh, yes. Played by Ellen Corby. Oh, <laughs> Who was also in. The She was grandma. Of <laughs> Cab Slash. Yes. Speedway Pete came up with Quick Houston and Steve Suede Bar. <laughs> that, that was pretty good. That, that was pretty like good. It. good for you. Like But in no universe, including the fictional Cars universe, will I ever be considered Quick. <laughs> <laughs> David Newman called us Professor Wade and Slick Rick. Professor Wade, this isn't Gilligan's Island. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Wade. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that one didn't quite fit me, but I like it. Speaking of Gilligan's Island, Marianne or Ginger? Uh one in the morning and one in the afternoon. How about that? Margaret line one. Margaret Wade, <laughs> line one. <laughs> Steve, that was not what I was expecting you to say. That was awesome. Yeah. Okay. All right. Personally. I am team Marianne all the way morning, noon, and night. (laughs) (laughs) September 1986, after the fall Dover race, Jack Ingram was atop the Bush series standings. Brett Bodine was second, and Larry Pearson was third. That much is definite. According to Racing Reference, Jack led Brett by 250 points and Larry by 282. How Ever, in second to none, the preeminent authority on all things having to do with the history of the Bush series. No argument here. no <laughs> It's no fun if you don't fuss. Okay. <laughs> it's no fun if you don't fuss at all. And from the original race reports that I have from back then, Jack led Brett by 246 points and Larry by 265. So I don't know where that discrepancy comes from, but I do have a source, and a reliable source, I would think, that did say that there was a little bit of a difference in their points leads. Also, racing reference shows that only five races were run that year after Dover, yet Second to None reports that six races remained on the schedule after that event. Now, again, I don't know what caused the discrepancy in points, but I can point you to the difference in the number of races remaining that season. There was a 200-lap Busch Series event scheduled for October 11th at Hickory, and Britt captured the pole position for that event during qualifying, but this is where things get interesting. Patty Moise wrecked during practice and damaged a light pole. And I was told by a longtime Busch Series official that someone from the track, was then caught taking a chainsaw to what was left of the light pole so there wouldn't be enough light to run the race the next night because the track could not or would not pay the $35,000 purse. Well, there's some skullduggery going on there, don't you think, Rick? The race was canceled with no makeup date. Ah, so therein lies the problem, right? The day after the Dover-Bush series race, Jack went back to new Asheville to run a late model race. He, and another driver by the name of Ronnie Presley, who is Robert's cousin, got into a scrape. Jack wound up going the wrong way on the racetrack and he rammed into Ronnie and he caused Ronnie some injuries. I saw
3: the film. That's exactly what he did.
0: They weren't life threatening injuries, but Jack insisted that it was an accident. Chaos ensued. Jack was put in handcuffs. There was dang near a riot. And as a result of all this, Jack was suspended for two Bush series races for something that happened in a late model event. And I'm here to tell you the surest way to get Jack Ingram fired up was to mention that incident or the official he felt was responsible for the severity of that suspension.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I can understand the way Jack would feel about all that. I think, though, that in this particular instance, you have to remember that Jack Ingram was a prominent NASCAR driver and personality. And NASCAR, I think, reasons that they can't not punish that type of driver with that type of notoriety to go anywhere and cause an incident like that one. They had to do
0: something. And I agree. I think they had to do something. But. I think that what they did was a little too much, was a lot too much. Well, I think
3: you have a good point, but I also think that NASCAR probably felt that what Jack did needed some severity because of who he was, and they could not condone his behavior, no matter what race it was in.
0: Well, that being said, whether Larry trailed by 282 points or 265, whether there were five or six races, remaining on the 1986 schedule, this was the biggest surprise for me personally, during this entire interview, despite that big of margin with that few races remaining, Larry insisted during that conversation that he was going to win the 1986 Bush series championship. Even if Jack hadn't wound up sitting out two races,
3: Larry must have been very confident that he could get it done.
0: Well, I would respond to that by saying okay, who am I to argue with Larry Pearson? But <laughs> just because I like to stir the pot and create a ruckus every once in a while, <laughs> Larry says that he was going to win that championship. But what about Brett coming up just seven points short? And what might've happened had that race at Hickory not been canceled? Now, don't
3: you think Brett's asked that question himself? I'm curious.
0: I think the race... At Hickory being canceled is as big a factor in determining that championship as Jack's suspension.
3: Well, I think you're right, because as you've already mentioned, what could have happened either way for Larry or for Brett had to been able to run
0: that race? That's a big question. Things could have changed. Chew on this for a second. That year, there were three races scheduled for Hickory. In July at Hickory, Brett had finished second to Larry's sixth, which meant a difference of 20 points. In June at Hickory, Brett was third to Larry's seventh, which is a 19-point difference. Now, I don't say that to say that Brett surely was going to finish better than Larry in that canceled race, but Brett evidently ran really well at Hickory, and he lost out on a chance. To gain those seven points.
3: That's the reason I said that Britt has probably asked himself that question about the third Hickory race more than once. Look at his record there against Larry. It was obviously in Brett's favor, which to him surely meant the odds were really good. He could gain points in a third race.
0: Finally, we mentioned this in the intro, but there were people in racing who were very superstitious. That being the case, Larry was something far beyond that. Larry talked about putting bananas in the seat of Mike Alexander's car to draw the bad luck monkey off of his own back and then Mike getting hurt in the snowball derby. Now, Larry does not necessarily blame himself for Mike's accident, but the banana shenanigans stopped. He was that wary of some sort of bad juju coming out of this banana caper.
3: Well, in that case, it's a good thing he did stop. Bananas in the backseat. Rick, I have never heard of that.
0: Now, that is the Larry Pearson, Mike Alexander banana story. And trust me, we've got more on Larry and Mike coming up next week.
3: I'll bet we'll have its appeal, Rick.
0: Appeal. Don't you ever say (laughs) anything about my dad jokes ever again. (laughs) (laughs) That, and I'm sorry I didn't come up with it myself. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace, September 25th, 1986, issue of Grand National Scene. Jeff Bodine appears to have a lock on victory at Martinsville when Hendrick Motorsports teammate Tim Richmond loops his car in turn two to bring out the 12th and final caution flag on lap 476. At the time, Jeff had an eight-second lead over Rusty Wallace and was within feet of lapping third place Harry Gantt. Jeff was cruising. Everybody pitted under that caution, and Rusty Wallace's Blue Max Racing crew got him back out onto the racetrack first, and that was all she wrote when it came to the victory. Rusty said, if that last caution hadn't come out, I couldn't have caught Jeff because that's when we had the bad set of tires. When I felt my car hit the ground and theirs was still on the jacks, I felt good. If we hadn't had that pit stop, we would have run second. As for Jeff, Rusty added, I think we were pretty close and evenly matched. He had a little bit on me, no doubt about that. The only thing I was thinking in the last 20 laps was, hug the bottom curb. Don't slip up. I just kept riding that line, and when Jeff started falling back, I felt a sigh of relief. Jeff started from the pole that day and led a total of 226 laps, more than anybody else that day, And as you can imagine, he wasn't exactly thrilled with getting beat out of the pits and losing his shot at the victory. He got out of his car and walked to his holler without talking to reporters. And then when he went up into the lounge, he slammed the door and he changed clothes and calmed down before coming out and talking to you because you wrote the sidebar on Jeff that day.
3: Well, Rick, you can just imagine how Jeff felt how many times have we said on this show. That racers who lose the race by being beaten out of the pits on the last pit stop of the race are not happy at all. As a matter of fact, a pit stop is largely out of their control and has to be performed by the team members, the crew. And when it doesn't happen the way the driver thinks it should happen, and ultimately he loses the race because of it, that does not make him a happy
0: man. His stops evidently hadn't been the best all day long, so crew chief Gary Nelson had lined up Robin Pemberton, who was serving as Morgan Shepherd's crew chief at the time, and Morgan had fallen out of the race. Gary had lined up Robin to fill in on that last pit stop. Jeff said, our pit stops had been slow all day, and we were trying to get the right combination to make them quicker. If my teammate hadn't spun out, I would have won the race. I thought our stop the time before the last one was pretty good, But I don't question Gary Nelson. He can make whatever changes he wants. And that's what he did to try and speed us up. You did a feature on Jeff's faith in this issue. In it, Jeff said, some people need a catastrophe in their lives to turn to religion or the Bible. It just crept up on me. I found life to be complicated. It is tough today to raise two boys with all the drugs and wars we are having today. I needed some answers. And I found out that the Bible tells you what can happen and how to prepare for it. It tells you how you can change your life. And that is the kind of thing I want to pass on to my sons.
3: Well, Jeff was obviously thinking about his family at that point. And additionally, he was thinking about the condition of society of his day. And he wanted answers for that. I really don't blame him for going to the Bible if he feels that's going to be the source of his answers. I say Good for him.
0: Ricky Rooster Rudd <laughs> was not happy with Kyle Petty after they were involved in a get-together on lap 321. Now, Steve, you might want to settle in for this because Ricky got on a roll.
3: <laughs> He's been known to do
0: that. It didn't mention anything about cocaine, but he was still pretty ticked off. <laughs> Listeners, that's a reference to a couple of episodes ago. Go listen to that. Never mind. <laughs> Ricky said... There is an idiot out on the racetrack, and his name is Kyle Petty. You want to be nice, but there is no other way to put it. He turned right into me. I got under him cleanly, and instead of maybe rubbing me to let me know he was there or didn't like it, he bumped me twice in the right rear, and on the third time, he turned me sideways into the wall. Earlier, he was holding me up two-tenths of a second per lap, and I nudged him to let him know it. But then he does this. It's ridiculous to pull that kind of thing this early in the race. We hadn't run the car hard all day. Heck, we didn't have to. There wasn't a scratch on it before the wreck. You can't say we would have won the race, but we had a whole lot of race car left for the end of the race. Now, Kyle went on to finish sixth, but afterwards, he reportedly dealt with some pretty substantial heat exhaustion after the race. Now, I said reportedly. Reportedly. He was in the ambulance and was said to be headed to the hospital. But two hours after the checkered flag, he still hadn't arrived at the hospital. He had evidently recovered enough for him to leave directly from the racetrack. And Steve, you evidently caught up with him the next day or maybe later that night by phone or whatever. I don't know what the circumstances were, but you did somehow get a quote from him after this race. Kyle said... The ambulance got to the top of the hill, leaving the speedway, and I got out and got into my van and went home. I was feeling fine. With about 100 laps to go, I started getting sick, and then with 50 laps to go, I was really sick. My eyes couldn't focus. I took off my goggles to let the wind air my eyes out. Then I could see my hands, but I couldn't feel them. When I got out of the car, my legs and arms were numb too. That's why I had to lay down. I had to get my body temperature cooled down.
3: Well, apparently he was in pretty bad shape before the ambulance got him to take him away to the hospital. But as you said, he never got to the hospital. He left the ambulance just as it left the truck so he could get to his van. Now, Rick, I have only one question. How does a man whose legs and arms and hands are numb and who can barely see all of a sudden, in the space of maybe a couple hundred feet, be well enough to leave that ambulance and go to his own car? Can you answer that, question?
0: I don't know that I can answer it definitively, but you know for a fact that I love myself a good conspiracy theory. Well, we got one here. Grassy Knoll, baby. Grassy Knoll. Now, I'm sure that Kyle knew that Ricky wasn't very happy with him, and if Ricky wasn't happy with him, I'm pretty sure that that would mean that Ricky's car owner, Bud Moore, probably wasn't either. I'm thinking that when Kyle got in that ambulance and rode out of the racetrack, it wasn't because he was headed to the hospital. That was his getaway vehicle.
3: There's some some pretty good evidence that that was indeed the (laughs) case.
0: I'm sure Kyle was pressed to the back window of that ambulance going, okay, guys, this is far enough. Okay. We're out of the racetrack now. We're good. We're good. (laughs) Uh, Stop, stop. I'm jumping out. (laughs) Surely they can't catch up to me here. (laughs) (laughs) Tommy Houston won Martinsville's Bush series race, but the big news was that Jack Ingram was not there due to the run-in with Rodney Presley at New Asheville that we mentioned earlier. Larry Peterson finished second and Brett Bodine was fourth. But afterward, Jack was still the point leader by 90 over Brett and 112 over Larry. Jack was originally suspended indefinitely, which meant that there was no set length of how long he would be suspended. Larry won the next race at Orange County while Brett was third. Brett went to the top of the point standings after Orange County by seven over Larry. Jack fell to third in points, 75 back. And I guess it was at that point that NASCAR evidently went, okay, now we can let Jack back on the track. Well, Rick,
3: what I think happened here was NASCAR saw that Jack fell from first to third in points because of the suspension. So it called it off. It said to itself, I'm sure, okay, he was the leader. Now he's not. We've punished him enough. That was just too severe. Well, okay, Rick, but I'm just telling you, a personality with the status of the driver that Jack had has to be called to question when he does something that's wrong, no matter what race it's in. That's the way NASCAR felt.
0: Gene Granger had a really good column about Bill Elliott's 1986 season to that point. Bill had won two races to that point in the 1986 season, which would have pleased a lot of drivers. But after 1985 and the Winston million and awesome bill from Dawsonville and all that stuff, anything short of that, I'm sure was going to be considered a slump. I don't know that I know this, but according to Gene, it was no secret at that time that Bill had been offered $500,000 to move elsewhere in 1986 with Ernie Elliott supposedly getting $200,000 to join him. Who made that offer? Do you know?
3: No, I don't, Rick. I never found out. I only had one theory. This was in 1986, correct? That he was offered the deal to go somewhere else. At that time, Darryl Walshup was in his last year with Junior Johnson. It is conceivable that Junior might have offered that kind of money to Bill and Ernie to move over to his team. But I'm not too sure that Junior would offer that kind of money. I mean, Ricky had A lot of veteran guys on his team who did not need to be moved out of the way for these two. I can see Bill Elliott more than I can see Ernie. I have my doubts about that, but that's all I can think of.
0: Well, here's some food for thought. Tim Richmond joined Hendrick Motorsports in 1986 with Harry Hyde as his crew chief. I wonder if Rick Hendrick made the offer to Bill and Ernie. Uh, that's a possibility too. That's I mean, to Rick certainly right had they the, uh, certainly had the money to do it. In response to all this, team owner Harry Melling had returned twenty percent of the operation back to the Elliots. Harry said, "Bill and Ernie were offered a lot of money. I gave the Elliots twenty percent of the team. I own eighty percent, and the team is here to stay. The reason they didn't leave is loyalty. I'm not paying them anything like they were offered." but they have an interest in the team. So Harry Mellon is confirming that somebody made an offer. And between the two that we've mentioned, Junior Johnson and Rick Hendrick, I got to believe that it was one of those two.
3: Theoretically, I think that's the case, Rick, but Harry made this smart move here by giving them 20% of the team. That means that they now have a stake in that team. And that means that not only are they collecting pretty good salaries, with this 20% stake, they need to work hard and do as well as they possibly can, because that means a whole lot more
0: money, the better they do. There had been rumors that Harry hadn't taken care of the troops, so to speak, after the team won the million-dollar bonus the year before. Harry insisted that that was not the case. But complicating matters over and above everything was the fact that Ernie was dealing with mononucleosis. When Bill won at Michigan that year, Ernie skipped victory lane to go lay down in the truck. Harry continued If Ernie was unhappy, I would know about it. Ernie is the boss of the racing team, but he's still sick. He was so sick at the last Michigan race, he could hardly stand up. He still has what he had at Daytona in February. When he was hospitalized, which if you stop and think about it,
3: Rick, Ernie being that sick for the total part of the year, uh, gosh, I know that they were not happy that they could not come close to 1985, but with Ernie feeling that way, well, I'm not using that as an excuse. That's a reason. If you ask me, that's one reason why the team wasn't up to the level it wanted to be.
2: You might know me as L.W. Wright. The only place you can hear from me and the truth about me is from the Scene Vault podcast.
0: Hello Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter "scene" at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. Our question this week comes from Avery Brew. Bobby Allison and Die Guard Racing's 1985 split is notorious in NASCAR circles and stemmed from the addition of a team car for Greg Sachs. If that was the reason for Bobby's sudden departure and him not wanting a teammate, Why did he spend the rest of his career from 1986 on with Stavola Brothers Racing alongside a teammate in Bobby Hillen? Now, Steve, that is a dang good question. What do you got? (laughs) Uh, But Rick, you know, I that's a very good question. I do
3: have a theory, not so much an answer. But at that time, Bobby was 48 years old. He had been racing a lot of years. And I think his opportunities to race. Well, high-quality teams were slim. If you stop and think about it, most of the top teams at that time were pretty much set on what they were going to do with drivers from 86 and on. Uh, not all of them, but most of them. Some of those teams Bobby had raced for earlier, like Junior Johnson and Bud Moore. And they did not see the good sense to go back and rehire them when they had good drivers in the first place. And Bobby was 48 years old. So if you take the combination of his age and years in the sport and the in opportunities that were really out there with top teams, I think Bobby might have decided they might as well stay right where he is because he
0: could win races with his to and he did. Well, you just brought up a scenario that just boggles the imagination. Junior Johnson hiring Bobby Allison as a teammate to Daryl Walter. (laughs) (laughs) Not happening. (laughs) Somebody would have come out of that deal bleeding. Not happening. (laughs) Daryl Walter and Bobby
3: Allison teammates. Yes, sir. To be be very blunt, uh, Rick, Bobby didn't leave some of those top teams on very good terms. Yeah. He's not about to go back to a team with which he had not left on the best of terms.
0: We featured a Bobby Hillen clip last week, and we're going to feature two in this episode. I've asked Bobby Hillen this very question about Bobby Allison not wanting a teammate at Die So what was the deal at the Stavola brothers? He had left Die midway through 1985 because he wasn't exactly a fan of two-car teams. How did things work out that he became your teammate at the Stavola brothers?
1: Well, I think you know, you know. Look, there's a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes that I really didn't know about. Um, I don't think Bobby wanted two car team to Volus either. But
2: it's just, <laughs> <laughs> that
1: was the way it was going to be, and, uh, and and that was a struggle for us. And, and um, but you know, it, at the end of the day, it was what it was, and and we got through it. And you know, what probably wasn't the best scenario for me uh, long term. It was really good for me short term because it helped put us on the map. Um, but probably wasn't the best scenario for me long term.
0: And my follow-up to that question was, did Bobby Hillen consider himself a test driver for Bobby Allison? Bobby, was it a situation where maybe you were being used as a test team for Bobby's operation, or was it a situation where... You were maybe too young to maybe have a say so and say, "Hey, we need to do something else here." As far yeah, as I the chassis it, goes,
1: yeah, I think it was just it wasn't that it wasn't that I was being used as a test team for Bobby's team at all. It, the teams were totally separate. And it was interesting about that time is I had some familiarity with the way some of the two car IndyCar teams operate through my dad's operation and, and even formula one, because he had a relationship with some of the formula one guys. And, you know, I was a real proponent of having the team's act as one team with two different drivers where you, you really is more like what Hendrick does today. And, um, and so it, you know, even though we weren't that way with we several teams, I still I, I couldn't say it was because I was like a test team for housing. The teams operated totally separate. Um, it was more just, you know, uh, our guys trying to do their own thing, and I was just – I really didn't have a say in the team.
0: Listeners, email your questions for Steve or I to rick at com or tweet us using hashtag Ask AskSameVault. Look forward to answering all your questions. I don't know that David ever caught on to that, but he but he respond but he responded to that but he responded to that by saying but he responded to that by insisting on two radio and Larry took that and they and Larry responded and Larry and Larry took that And then David wanted two radios. And Larry responded to that by making sure that both of the ones that David had were half dead. So he had, so David Pearson had two half dead radios